Hello and welcome again to the CRASH podcast, which is all about clinical radiology academics speaking honestly. I'm your host, Tom Termazai, consultant radiologist in Norwich and the Royal College of Radiologists 2020 Röntgen Professor. In this series, we talk to inspirational radiologists from across the UK at different stages of their career, all of whom are involved in academic radiology and research. From starting out as trainees all the way through to leading whole research programmes, we explore the motivations, the rewards and the challenges of a career in academic radiology. And while we're at it, a little bit about the radiologists themselves. Last time, in episode two, we spoke to four brilliant radiologists about how they gradually became absorbed by research, and how they ended up in their PhD, and how they kept up their clinical skills when away from the front line. In this third episode, we talk with three more radiologists, but a few rungs further up the ladder, and now looking at breaking through to new heights in their chosen field. Among other things, we ask what drives them to succeed, the importance of mentorship, and what their ultimate research goal is. So I'm delighted to be joined today by Jonathan Wimmer-Call, University Lecturer at the University of Cambridge and Honorary Consultant Radiologist at Royal Papworth Hospital, also in Cambridge. Manil Chuan, Joint Clinical and Academic Consultant Radiologist at University College London Hospital. And Jamie Mackay, Clinical Senior Lecturer at the University of East Anglia and Honorary Consultant Radiologist from the office next door in Norwich. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on The Crash Podcast. Thank you. Great to be on board. Thanks. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning, which is a pretty good place to start. Jamie, you and I know each other, um, for better or worse, but for the benefit of our listeners, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, and how you came to be where you are today? So I started off, uh, I guess, by by studying medicine in Cambridge. I then, uh, on something of a whim, applied for academic foundation programme posts and, and ended up by accident rather than design, really, in Norwich, where I did my F1 and F2 jobs. I decided quite early on that I wanted to be a rheumatologist, but fortunately, one of my F2 rotations was in radiology, so I had a lucky escape and was uh, convinced that actually becoming a radiologist and more specifically a musculoskeletal radiologist would be a, a much better idea. So I then entered radiology training in Norwich, just as a sort of standard registrar, not in an academic clinical fellow capacity or anything like that. I did the first three and a bit years of my training before then going out of programme to do a PhD at the University of Cambridge, which was sort of jointly between the departments of radiology and orthopaedics. So I was out of programme there for uh, a little over three years and then returned to Norwich as a clinical lecturer to complete my training and continue my academic work. And then that was a relatively short spell as clinical lecturer for, for just under a year, in fact, before I was appointed as senior clinical lecturer and honorary consultant just over a month ago now. And, and that's where I am. Clinically, I'm a musculoskeletal subspecialist sort of all aspects of musculoskeletal radiology. And from a research point of view, from a relatively early stage, I've had a focus on imaging assessment of osteoarthritis with a particular focus on quantitative imaging and also a particular focus on MRI and looking really to see how we can use imaging to better stratify patients and also better assess outcome in clinical trials over more feasible time periods than would traditionally have been possible um, using alternative outcome measures. Right. Thanks ever so much, Jamie. You're actually one of the few guests so far that hadn't started out down the career line of surgery. So I think that's a refreshing change of direction from away from rheumatology. I, was gonna say, I, I, did, I did initially want to be an orthopedic surgeon, but I, I went oh. to my elective to Australia to do orthopedic surgery and I decided I couldn't be bothered with sort of holding someone's leg up for three hours, you know, while other people operated on it which I guess is sort of the entry level of orthopedics. So that was discarded, moved on to rheumatology and then eventually saw the light and chose musculoskeletal radiology. Well, all signs point to the fact that you're moving up in the world. So well done there. As you will have probably picked up by now, um, one of the most important bits of the CRASH podcast is taking the CRASH test. Reminding our listeners and introducing for our new guests, the crash test involves answering some quick fire questions that our guests will select from the crash test grid, answering as honestly as possible. The idea is to find out a little bit more about our guests as individuals, a glimpse into what makes them tick, what makes them talk, and I'll be calling parents slash partners afterwards to find out if you've been telling me any porky pies. We switch around the questions each episode, so even if you think you've done your homework, you still have to be on your toes. Jamie, if you are ready, you can get us started with five questions to choose from the grid. Which number from one to 16 would you like? I'll go for number one. Why not? Good place to start. Have you ever had an x-ray? No, I haven't. That is not proving not, not, to something people have had. Maybe when I was a kid. I, I did. Apparently, I broke my foot at some point, but I've only got my parents' word for that, so I've no idea. Well, there we are. Okay, next one. Uh, seven. What did you get away with at school? 
So the thing that immediately springs to mind is that I think it was maybe so standard grade, which is Scottish equivalent of GCSE English, we had to do an in-class test. Uh, I hadn't really memorised my quotes very well, so I managed to have my book sort of open in my bag and for all, writing down all the quotations. And I remember the, the English teacher afterwards commenting on how well I'd managed to remember all of these passages from the book. Still feel guilty about it today, really. So that, that's why it popped into my mind. So yeah, that 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 little bit of um, minor cheating. Um, hopefully the the SQA won't take away my standard grade now, but uh, past the statute of limitations. But yeah, that, that that that's probably it. Well, that sounds like a suitably moral car crash. Well done. The next one. Fifteen. What's the most ridiculous item of clothing you've bought and actually worn? Ah, well, I don't know if I should share this publicly. I, I suppose this is we're speaking honestly, aren't we? So. In Cambridge Medical School, there's a pantomime every year, which is quite successful, raised a lot of money for charity. A lot of students are involved in it, some consultants and other members of staff are as well. In my penultimate year, I co-wrote it. It was around the time when Borat was was around and one of the, the scenes called for someone to come on stage in a mankini. So I'd written this part. And then we discovered that not many people were willing to do that. So I had to sort of put my hand up and say, <laughs> OK, you know, put my money where my mouth was. So um, unfortunately, the, the audience uh, saw more of me than they certainly wanted to. So yeah, the, the, the Borat mankini on stage is definitely the most outrageous thing that I've worn or purchased. Let's move on extremely rapidly to the next yes, one. Yes, please. Uh, these aren't going very well for me, are they? Cheating the exam, <laughs> wearing mankinis. Uh, number nine, please. What would you most like to change about yourself? You have got a bit of a personal run here. I'm quite sort of set in in, in routine a lot of the time. And if, if something deviates from that, I can deal with it, but I, I don't always deal with it the best. So maybe maybe just being a bit more flexible and, and sort of easygoing, both in, in work and, and in the personal arena would, would probably be what I'd, what I'd pick there. Okay, and your last one? Uh, 13, unlucky 13. What would be the title for your autobiography? In my first year as a radiology registrar, three of us from the department entered the, the Norwich Triathlon together and I was so delighted with our team name um, that I now feel I can recycle it as my autobiography. And it was X-rated, but the, it was it contained the word X-ray Ted at the end. Gotcha, and, um, nice. That makes me sound quite dangerous, which isn't really the case, but I, I quite like that as an autobiography title. There we are. Excellent. Look, thanks, Jamie, for taking the crash test. Let's move on to our next guest. Money, would you like to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be where you are today? Yeah, so I think I'm uh, probably a, a bit guilty in the sense that I did start out my career thinking uh, I wanted to become a surgeon. When I graduated from medical school, I uh, kind of, um, as uh, Jamie mentioned, sort of by chance, uh, more than by design, uh, into an academic foundation program. Not really too certain about what research involved. And in my research block, I ended up doing lab-based research, which I realized, oh my God, this is awful. It was a lot of uh, cell culture, biochemistry type methods. And I thought, if I really have to see out a career doing this, this is it for me. But during my clinical time in the foundation program, I saw enough surgery to realize this is not going to be a career choice that, that will work for me. But I did see enough of the radiology side to make me realize that actually this is really what I wanted to do. And almost again, it was a bit of a punch, sort of more throwing my hat in the ring rather than knowing for sure this was definitely a career that I wanted. I applied for uh, radiology ACF and uh, ended up uh, uh, getting uh, a post at UCL. The good thing was that it was a department which was really quite driven and my supervisors very early on pushed me to try and uh, go for a research training fellowship. So um, I started out uh, my clinical training with about a day a week and then ended up applying for a research training fellowship at the end of my first year and then uh, managed to get one with Wellcome and left the training program kind of halfway through my SD2 year to take three years out of program to do my PhD. The, the PhD was was really, really, uh, I think, a, a defining experience, as most academics will, will, will say. And it was kind of unusual because I ended up doing a lot of translational work. So it was animal research as well as clinical research uh, and a lot of stuff on sequence development uh, for uh, quantum of MRI in the liver. And after I did my PhD, I came back um, having to uh, complete my exams because then I was the, the delayed trainee in the cohort, if you know what I mean. So I was full-time clinical for about nine months or so, during which I uh, finished my FRCR and then managed to apply and was successful with their clinical lectureship, which I then used to see out the rest of my training. So I used this, this CL post because it's kind of 50-50 split to extend my training for at least another four years or so 
which is kind of good because it helped me get a bit of interventional training as well as my diagnostic training alongside um, what I wanted to do, which was HPV radiology. When I finished um, my training, it was more, again, uh, as you know, with these, these sort of things, it just really depends on what posts are available. So I ended up doing a maternity locum originally, which was quite stressful, uh, bearing in mind that you know, I had all these research projects running and I was doing a full-time NHS job. And then after doing that, then I managed to sort of um, carve a niche to, to get my substantive post where I had a protected research time alongside my clinical activities. So um, I've been in that post now for just over three years now. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been I think one of the things that, that has I found really interesting is just seeing how the kind of research program and the research that you're involved with tends to evolve over time. And yeah, that, that's kept it very, very fresh for me. So yeah, that, that kind of brings me on to where I am. And I'm more or less now at a stage where I'm looking at applying for fellowships uh, again. But uh, yeah, we'll see. It's, it's an uphill process. So. <laughs> So I suspect you're not the only delayed trainee in their cohort, as you put it, amongst us. I think some of us have been holding back for a few years, um, which is inevitable. And I think everyone has talked about that. It's part of the packet. Shall we see how you manage with the crash test, Manil? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to this, Tom. <laughs> okay, well, let's hope that Jamie cleared out the stinkers for you. Why don't you choose yeah. your first number? Um, let's go for number five. How many times did you fail your driving test? I didn't actually. I got it okay. first time. <laughs> now, this is my favorite question. So we're going to bring in the others. Jonathan, how many times did you fail? You might have guessed from my clapping off him, I was very impressed because it was on my third attempt before I managed to get it at uh, a sprightly age of uh, 31, I believe, as well. Well, that deserves a round of applause in itself, Jamie. I was going to say, I, I, I wasn't quite as, as advanced in years as Jonathan, but it did take me four times to pass my test. So I managed, I failed Ooh. it three times in Glasgow, moved to Cambridge, and then um, eventually passed it with a new ex the same examiner three times. He just, he obviously had it in for me. But yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm a fourth timer. Okay, well, our listeners will know that that is equal worth. So... You can find out, but they will know. Well done, Jamie. Uh, Manil, we have got a few more questions. Yeah, do you want to pick? Um... Yeah, let's go for number 11. What's your most annoying habit? I think I'm quite fidgety. So, uh, yeah, I just tend to, you know, I find it very hard to sit still. So I'm always, you know, touching my hair, touching my face, you know. Yeah, that it's... tells us a lot. Let's go for the next one. Um, number two. What's your banker karaoke song? Ooh. <laughs> probably say living on a prayer i think i think that works for academic careers <laughs> yeah very appropriate next one um four what keeps you awake at night i would say probably nothing because we're just so tired yeah, yeah <laughs> at the end of the that. day you're so fried from your clinical and, and academic work together you're just like oh gotta hit that pillow and i think you've got one more uh 16 what slice of cake are you sharing with nobody chocolate double chocolate sandwich <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you very much, Manil. Okay, let's come on to our last guest. It's Jonathan. Please, Jonathan, tell us also about yourself, your background, and how you came to be where you are today. So by the signs of it, uh, I'm a walking, talking cliche. I also wanted to be a surgeon throughout <laughs> med school. I was in the surgical society, orc workshop coordinator, all the bells and whistles. And then I started working with surgeons in my F1, and I was like, I do not want to be a surgeon. And after that, I just kind of flailed about for a bit until I started attending MDTs and was utterly fascinated by the, the work and role of the radiologist that had otherwise been completely hidden from my existence, other than the fearful moments after the ward round each morning whenever I had to go down to request the scans. But all of a sudden, it was getting to see the flip side of the coin and what uh, was truly added to the clinical care of the patients. And I think that was enough to to convert me uh, to it. On the academic side, although I said I didn't want to become a surgeon, I have to credit surgeons with uh, infusing that with me with my second placement in F2, where I worked with an academic surgeon and he was doing all these randomized controlled trials of laparoscopic surgery at the time. And I was just like, this is uh, phenomenal. He's got this new technique. He's not just saying it's better because it leaves a smaller scar. He's actually setting out to prove that uh, improves outcomes for patients. And that was just really eye-opening for me. And after that, I really started to explore the options around the edges of how I might go about doing that. 
And the opportunity for that really didn't come about until I was already in radiology training and clinic, well, an ACF uh, equivalent post came up in uh, Scotland. I was, I'd been down in London all this time until this point, but, you know, heading back home, never a bad thing. So I applied for that job and went up there. And it also helped that the post was uh, led by a professor with an interest in cardiovascular imaging and having spent a few sessions in cardiac CT, although it was very niche at that time, I thought, you know, this is where the, the future future is just like we're you know moving away from diagnostic invasive angio of the lower limb at that time now it's almost unheard of I very much saw that that was the path that was going to happen with uh, cardiac CT and I thought let's get uh, in on this so after moving north I you know, continued through my training took time out to do a, a PhD focusing on cardiac MRI uh, before then heading off to Vancouver for a, a fellowship to further research and uh, my clinical skills in, in cardiac imaging. They were doing some really exciting stuff with computational fluid dynamics and new valve procedures there that I figured would be very useful for future careers. After that, there was a little bit of a brick wall, I have to, to admit. I'd uh, planned years in advance, you know, I was going to do my training, get a fellowship, get a consultancy, and all of a sudden I was out in Canada and I had nothing to uh, return to. And I was kind of going around cap in hand. I knew I wanted to continue academia. And I'd been chatting with Pat Worth and Bobby there because it's uh, a very prolific cardiothoracic radiology center and he happened to put me in contact with Fiona Gilbert who's the research pro oh, well, professor of radiology in uh, Cambridge who happened to have a little bundle of money for a project that was to do with lung nodules so not quite in my uh, area of uh, expertise or interest but it let me arrive down on the, the ground. It gave me an extra year to think and try and search out for a post. And I just spent my entire year pestering them until I think just to, to get me to quieten down, they, they found a post for me to carry on my research afterwards. And that's, uh, that, yeah, been there for a year now and it's been well worth the journey and effort. Jonathan, did your um, research experiences previously involve a high degree, like a PhD? Yeah, so once I moved up to Scotland to take the academic post up there, I then started applying for funding for a PhD and uh, managed to uh, gain funding from the Wellcome Trust between my fourth and fifth year of radiology training. So I took three years out, kept a little bit of clinical competence around the side with uh, on calls. It was great just having that time and uh, I think it really focused the mind in terms of pursuing a future research career. I think these times out are really important because it really tells you whether this is something you enjoy or whether it's just the sound of it that you sound of it that you enjoy. Great stuff. Thank you, Jonathan. Now, keep your mind focused for the last installment of this episode's Crash Test. <laughs> Choose your first number. So, uh, well, let's start at the top uh, three. Have you ever won a sports trophy? As a kid, certainly. I was very sprightly and uh, really enjoyed my, my sports. And it was all going swimmingly for me up until uh, I was 11 years old. And then everyone around me hit their puberty growth spurt. And mine came about four years later. And uh, the interval period had just meant I was so inadequate at sport compared to uh, my peers who were twice my size that I'd, I'd lost the, the taste for it. OK, next one then. Oh, uh, six. What's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten? Well, many people would uh, say haggis is fairly unusual, but for a Scotsman, I can't, I can't answer that. That's just, you know, uh, an average uh, Sunday dinner. It would have to be, I'm trying to remember the name of it. It's uh, one of these Norwegian uh, delicacies where they bury the, the fish, uh, yes, uh, in the ground <laughs> and open it out uh, after the winter period. So that was uh, uh, quite memorable. Uh, respect there. Okay, next one. Uh, ten. Star Trek, Star Wars, or neither? Oh, why not both? <laughs> right, I missed a, a trick there. Fine. Okay, next one. Fourteen. Pride and Prejudice or Crime and Punishment? I haven't read uh, Pride and Prejudice, but I absolutely loved uh, Crime and Punishment, so I'll, I'll have to go with it. Okay, all right. And your last one. Uh, number eight. What's your dream holiday? I really enjoy uh, outdoors and hiking. You can tell by my choice of living in Cambridge. 
Uh, Banff National Park uh, has to be one of my all-time uh, favorites. The the hiking, the the lakes, uh, the the uh, scenery was just uh, phenomenal there. So. Getting to do that for a week or two or a year is always good. Well, brilliant. Well, look, thank you very much, Jonathan, for taking the crash test. However, there's one left, and I don't like it when there's an odd number of panelists on because that means I have to do the last one. <laughs> what career would you have had if you weren't a doctor? She. We were discussing this at a dinner the other week, Jamie. I said I'd be a voice artist, didn't I? Oh dear. <laughs> Okay, all right, let's wrap that up and let's move on. We're actually here to talk about our experiences as academic radiologists. For me to find out about what you have been up to. Jonathan, if I can stick with you, having committed by this stage, I'm assuming, to an academic career, what do you think have been the important factors that you had to balance in coming to that decision? So from quite an early stage, I'd always wanted to uh, go down the academic pathway. So it wasn't so much about balancing things. It was about how I would make it happen. There are uh, other parts of my career that I suppose I've just accepted would take a, uh, would have to counterbalance that uh, time and effort that would go into it. But there probably wasn't a huge amount of uh, weighing up pros and cons before before pursuing this so it was a it was pretty clear cut for you there wasn't things on one side things on the other one of those list forming moments not not so much i had to you know acknowledge that there would be certain things that would come as a cost of of this uh such as you know you you can never be the best in everything and therefore there was going to be a degree of uh sacrifice in terms of perhaps clinical skills or private practice or, or such like but uh i find ways to work around that so i'm working in a institute where i only have to do cardiothoracic radiology which means i only have to report scans of which i'm doing research which means although i may be horribly de-skilled in terms of some of my general radiology colleagues uh, hopefully my cardiothoracic skills are just about sufficient to keep me uh, on the right side of the gmc that's always that's always a good thing many tell me was it a decision of balance for you or was it a clear path no, I think it's it's definitely a balance. I think at, at each and every stage of your career, there's always um, elements which you, you know you you can't you can't have your cake and, and eat it um, for in every aspect of your life. There's only so much you can do with so many hours in a day. As a trainee, you have to accept that your training will be extended, and and that's just part of the process. I think there's other compromises that you face as well. So. Um, we all know that when you start radiology training, it's such a, it's such a, it's so new. Um, unlike other medical specialties, it's like nothing you've ever done before. So uh, you're kind of having to deal with that at the same time as uh, uh, then facing also the um, added pressure of trying to develop an academic career even as a as a junior. So that puts pressure on you, you know, exams, all the like, which I'm, I'm sure some of your earlier podcasts will have also touched on as well. And then. You know, equally, if you are in, and for the vast majority of us, academic radiology is a niche. So I think we kind of carry a sort of cross that um, other colleagues don't always necessarily understand. There's this perception sometimes, I think, with some of our clinical colleagues, for no fault of their own, uh, maybe because we're not there all the time or we don't have the same visibility or profile uh, on the shop floor, as it were. Um, that that uh, you, you do kind of feel a bit more disconnected from that environment. And I think the challenge for us as as a, a clinical and academic radiologist is to sort of bridge that gap and to try and you know, try and reconcile the, that uh, difference. But but it is certainly a, a challenge. Then the other thing, as John mentioned as well, once you get to senior stage, there are compromises to be made because, um, for example, simple things like, like private practice. You know you know you know that straight away as an academic radiologist the options are going to be less and you know you have different pressures on your, your time and stuff i would say from my own experience as well as a uh, in uh, radiologist who does intervention i don't do vascular intervention but i do non-vascular intervention i think uh, you know because it is a craft specialty you also face that pressure in terms of not necessarily being there all the time and having so much um, needle time as it were uh, to, to do procedures as as maybe your full-time clinical colleagues do um, so, and I think especially at the early stage of your career, that makes um, a, a big difference. Uh, probably some of our senior colleagues who, who might be academic and do intervention don't necessarily feel that sort of pressure as much as you do when you're a junior consultant. 
I think some people might genuinely be put off by the fact that maybe not such things as um, private practice or your time is spent on things that don't necessarily have financial uh, immediate financial reward but there is a lot of other richness that we're going to come on to discuss but also you are developing some serious niche expertise that in its way may come round to be you know required in terms of consultancy in later years which others have expressed to me as one of the the things that they have found coming so that these things do appear jamie can i come on and ask you the same question about the processes that you you might have gone through in deciding on pursuing a full-on academic career yeah i think that's it's a good question and I, th I think for me it was probably more of a gradual process than than what sort of jonathan described in terms of you know having that having that goal from, from the get-go. I think I sort of dipped my toe into radiology research um, under uh, the supervision of Andoni Toms, who's a, a very research active musculoskeletal radiologist in Norwich. Um, just after my part one exams, so sort of starting off with relatively small projects using retrospective data, journeying on through to getting a, one of the RCR pump priming project grants, so sort of, and then doing a prospective study, and then sort of deciding actually, yeah, do you know, I really enjoy this, and Taking that further and then looking for PhD funding and then sort of the rest of it follows from there. So it's sort of been, I, I guess each of those steps, yeah, you do have to stop and think, what am I potentially giving up or, or what are the potential drawbacks? Um, and I, I think um, Manil and, and Jonathan have outlined those really well. I guess the thing that I would stress is, is the positive, you know, the, the fact that, you know, you're getting to do something that's pretty much entirely self-directed and, and then pursue a goal that, that you are, are really excited about and have a degree of autonomy over your time and what you do that you just don't get, I don't think, in, in clinical life, certainly not in as, as a registrar. So for me, that's always been the overriding concern, but I completely agree. I, th I think there are things you know to do with length of training uh, and when you get to consultancy in terms of opportunities for private practice, that type of thing. And, you know, I think we've all we've all experienced things where colleagues don't quite understand what you do during your academic time, and it's sort of seen as you know spare time that you can that, that can be tapped into to do extra clinical work. So there are those challenges there, but for me, I think on that stepwise approach, I've always found that that the benefits uh, greatly outweigh the the disadvantages. If you like, Manil, did you want to mention something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just in in uh, following to what James said. Yeah, there's a. I, I think not to detract from the huge number of positives. And I think one of the, the other points, which I think not only comes through in this discussion, but I think most academics will agree with, is that um, career academic careers are so varied in terms of what you do to get to a particular stage in academic career and what you actually do after that point. There's just so much variety. And you know, even in, in relation to, I mean, I know we, We've, we've, we've all sort of mentioned briefly private practice, but to be honest, you know, there's uh, much to be said about the entrepreneurial aspect that emerges from research. Um, so, you know, you you may, sure, you know, you're, you're not looking at, at uh, reporting a few extra scans, but you may be spinning up a new company that is going to uh, generate patents, uh, generate new ideas that will really change the way radiology services are delivered in the future. So, um, you know, I, I think I really want, um, I think some of our, anyone who is listening to it to really appreciate that the, the, the one of the real beauties of an academic career is you can kind of take it in any direction you want. And I know plenty of academics who will, who will say as a matter of principle will veer away from those kind of things, but equally there are many who will, will take these really uh, exciting opportunities to, to try and develop uh, their research in directions that can be marketable and, and be monetizable. I think that's a fantastic point, um, Manil. And but I keep on saying I did my PhD in engineering. That's not the first time I'd heard that. But I remember talking to my supervisor about elements of this, and he said, "Yeah, you know, occasionally you see the odd Ferrari parked out in front of the department from the spin-offs, which are a natural part of the research development and implementation process. After all, that's what we're all trying to do." Manil, can I come back to you with our next question, which is about the question. That seems to be at the core of research. It's crucial, a question that needs answering. With your particular research, what are those questions that you are trying to get to the bottom of? 
Yeah, so my main academic interest is in uh, quantitative MRI and applications to understanding liver disease and, and hepatopancreatic biliary disease. I think really what drives uh, the kind of whole research question process is just um, the fact that there is so so little that we uh, know about some of these methods and um, so much that is yet to be discovered. As academics, all of us go to conferences and share ideas, but, but one of the things that I think is really remarkable about working within the area of quantitative MR is that there's so many new ideas that uh, come out uh, year upon year, um, which have the potential to be really big clinical game changers. And I think the challenge uh, for us as clinical radiologists is being able to really take some of these exciting methods um, not only test them, but apply them, but apply them in a way that's useful to our patients, because there is a gap there. There's a gap between what um, uh, engineers and scientists will come up with in the lab, which might be really creative and really useful, but it's trying to forge it into something that's going to really make a difference to patient and clinical care. And I think that that's really one of our strengths, I think, as, as radiologists, and it's one of the things that, that drives me, is the ability to be able to bring together the clinical application with the science and the engineering behind it, um, and, and really the novelty of, of all of these ideas as they keep emerging over time, uh, which uh, you know is so many, this is so many things. And, and by the time you've tested one thing, there's you know another half a dozen things you're thinking, oh, I wish I'd done that. You know, so, <laughs> yeah, yes. it's, it's 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 an exciting process to be a part of. Jonathan, similar question to you. What are your thoughts on that question that's at the core of your research? So my core research is very much focusing on coronary artery disease and ischemic heart disease. And I think uh, imaging just pro provides such fascinating insights into these diseases. Historically, we've been rather limited in our research to either uh, studies of autopsy, we wait for people to die, and then we look at uh, the disease after it's already uh, killed them or uh, we use mouse and uh, other animal studies, which uh, while providing fascinating insights, you're always worried about that translation gap. How much do these animals actually replicate human physiology and have human pathophysiology? Whereas with imaging, we can really start to image that uh, pathophysiological pr uh, process in real time as it develops across the human lifespan and across all the, the disease severities. and uh, I'm predominantly focusing on a combination of uh, CT and MRI and bringing in the complementary anatomical and functional information from the, the two of those to really get down on what drives patients' symptoms and what drives uh, risk of future uh, heart attacks in, in these people. Thanks very much, Jonathan. Jamie, what are your thoughts on this? That core question at the centre of your research that you're trying to find an answer for? Yeah, so I think both Manila and Jonathan have, have put it very well, particularly the the sort of the being a, a radiologist and, and working on sort of translational imaging. I guess, I guess for me, the big point of, of bringing new methods into clinic, and as I mentioned earlier, my, my interest is really in MRI of osteoarthritis, is to do with the, the, the massive unmet need in this area. So unlike, for example, rheumatoid arthritis, where there are quite a lot of highly effective drugs now available, despite being an incredibly common condition, more than 10 million people in the UK, depending on how you define it, having some form of osteoarthritis, there isn't a disease-modifying treatment. And really, all the imaging by itself is great, and I find it really interesting in, in terms of validating and developing new, new methods. But actually, the, the real thing which drives me is, you know, can we develop a disease-modifying drug for this disease? Can imaging be used to identify which subgroups or or which phenotypes of patients are most likely to benefit from it? And, and can imaging in some way contribute to outcome assessment in clinical trials? Because that, that's been a big difficulty so far and, and probably one of the major reasons why treatments haven't been developed. And I, I said drugs there initially, but equally it could be surgical treatments, it could be no other other non-drug treatments as well. So that's sort of really the big question that drives me. And and the imaging itself is I find very interesting as well, but it's really driving towards meeting that unmet clinical need. Well, you and I could um given our background in this particular field, spend the rest of the podcast talking about this, but that would be grossly unfair on Manil and uh, Jonathan. Yeah, I do want to come to you with our uh, next question, which is about one of the great positive aspects of research, um, which is the opportunity to 
travel and network in a whole different arena. Meeting people from all around the world, friendships for life, sharing a similar passion, that research goal that we've just discussed. Can you tell me, give me, give us an idea of where your research has taken you? Yeah, so I know I, I completely agree with all of that. Um, you know, one of the major reasons that I've stayed in this area, osteoarthritis research, is from meeting people in the field and getting to know them. And, and you know, it's a really, it's a really nice group of people working in this area. So, so, so that that's certainly a key driver for for my interest in this area. In terms of where I've been, I think I remember my first sort of international conference where I presented something was was ECR in Vienna. And I remember just the the incredible nerves before going up on the podium to give this sort of 10 minute presentation, not, not to a huge audience or anything like that, you know, maybe 50, 60 people, but just the absolute nerves. So that was sort of Vienna, which seemed quite exotic at the time. But, but since then, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to have had the opportunity to travel quite widely with work, probably, you know, furthest I've been to Australia a couple of times, been to Singapore, and then some some slightly more niche places as well. So one of the, as, as you know, Tom, one of the uh, key imaging conferences in our area is the imaging workshop in osteoarthritis, which is typically not a huge conference. They can have it in slightly more unusual places than you might otherwise. So uh, last year, it didn't happen this year in person, obviously, um, or not in a substantial way in person, but last year it was held in Prince Edward Island in Canada. So this is a fairly small and very difficult to get to place, um, but it was absolutely lovely. Uh, you know, you're there and, and it's as much about the the interaction with your your fellow scientists and fellow clinicians as as anything else. One other thing I should mention actually is and, and another great um, benefit of doing research is I, I had the opportunity to apply for a, a travelling scholarship during my PhD. So this I managed to sort of incorporate it into my PhD time. Taking it out of clinical time might have been quite difficult, and this was to spend um, just over three months at Stanford University. So I mean they're very good at a lot of imaging uh, but but particularly in, in my area they've got a very good musculoskeletal imaging group and, and particularly developing the fundamental MRI methods to enable us to study joints so I was actually sort of probably going and living in a place and working with those people and I think that was a key part sort of give me the the confidence to move forward you know and I continue to work with them now so that's sort of a, a, a sort of cemented collaboration but you know that, that type of opportunity exists and a lot of the time it's just a case of putting yourself forward for it. Thank you Jamie. The yeah, osteoarthritis workshop in 2016 was in Ulu and uh, I think you missed that one we had the sauna sessions in the evening that was uh, particularly good. Manil what about yourself where has your research been able to take you around the world? Yeah well I think I have to say traveling is one of the great perks of doing research really. Um, I think at a junior stage of your career, it's a definite bonus. I think uh, I know certainly with a lot of my senior colleagues, they, they tend to feel it's a bit more of a burden, especially once you're a bit more settled or you've got family commitments and that sort of thing. But to me, I think it's a great way not only just to um, have the opportunity to share ideas and open your mind and see what else is happening on the ground, you know, before stuff gets published and, and gets put into public domain. But it's also really great to, to actually put uh, faces to names of some of the leaders in your field and have the opportunity to network with them, have the opportunity to understand what is the actual level that you may need to aspire to and also start to build up those networks that in the hope that one day, you know, we will, we ourselves will one day get there as, as leaders in our own fields and, and uh, be there doing those plenary sessions and so on and so forth. So I, I can't stress just how, how great the opportunities for travel and in academia are and, and how contributory they are to your professional development. For me, I mean, I've had the opportunity to go but most exciting uh, was most most exotic rather was um, uh, Hawaii uh, for ISMRM, uh, so it's great. And uh, I mean, you know, other places as well, Australia, um, several places in the US. I think the other thing that your research will also do is it will help with. Um, I mean, especially once you start getting involved with multi-center work and that sort of thing, you may end up having collaborations abroad, and um, that also provides really interesting not only cultural insights, but you may also have the opportunity to travel with that. I mean, obviously with COVID, things are a bit more limited at this time, but um, uh, you know that, that that those things will change in in time, and and I certainly think that if you're looking to have a career which gives you that kind of international reach and the opportunity to not only be the very best of what you do um, locally in your department at a national level but also at an international level then that's what academia really gives you an opportunity to do. Thanks Manif for those insights. That's, yeah, COVID-19 has changed the game 
and actually we can look at this in a positive way and we can also justify through noticing the difference that part of going to these events is is the time spent together and i'm not just talking about networking we're talking about ideas and inspiration real ideas come from meeting people in person in a way that you can't necessarily facilitate uh, through an online community but the positive side to this is we can engage far greater numbers and also people that might not otherwise have been able to afford or be given money out of a spending pot to be able to go when the costs may be lower for an online conference. And I am particularly thinking of juniors looking to break into a field. And this is a fantastic opportunity to say, look, well, I wonder if that conference, I've always wondered, perhaps I could just come in and join and see. And it's low cost, but high gain for juniors in that kind of uh, framework. Jonathan, you already mentioned that Vancouver was part of your training, but where else have you been able to go around the world with your research? So, uh, I mean, like Manil and uh, Jimmy, uh, the multiple international conferences really give you chances to explore the full breadth of the, the globe, whether that be the Americas, Africa, Europe, or Asia. Uh, but uh, one of the other things they really give you the opportunity to do is to see perhaps parts of uh, a country or even a city that you might not normally and i'd highly uh, recommend people to go to some of the conference organized uh, events as part of which i've had dinner down a salt mine in krakow and a dinner surrounded by lions and cheetahs in the middle of a zoo as part of a, another meeting all while getting to chat about your favorite uh, topics of uh, radiology and geeking out with other like-minded uh, folk. And uh, as uh, Manuel was very nicely um, talking about, about growing that network and gaining uh, ideas. Uh, one of the uh, more far-flung, but uh, perhaps not quite as far as uh, Australia or Hawaii uh, was from Hong Kong, but that funnily enough, grew from uh, I was presenting at uh, ECR and someone stood up in the crowd and asked a very per pertinent uh, question uh, and I, I stammered a little bit it was slightly earlier in my my career but managed to get through it but afterwards uh, he came up and we started uh, chatting and ever since then we've been in regular contact and just last year he invited me out spent uh, a week there as a visiting professor and just getting to really get to spend time with the trainees there, hear how a completely different part of the globe uh, works and runs and insights into their training, as well as, of course, building up that uh, collaborative network with uh, the center there for, for multi-center work. Great, thanks very much, Jonathan. Manil, one of the themes that has come up so far throughout the Crash podcast episodes is mentorship and how important that has been. By your stage, you're probably looking at the other side of the coin there, becoming a mentor, whether you know it or not. But how important have mentors been for you? And what have you learned from them that you can take forward in that role? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting you should mention that because uh, I, I've never really had a formal mentor. And I kind of regret not having a formal mentor, having been through mentorship training myself. And um, I'm in the process of taking on and, and mentoring um, other more junior trainees. But uh, what I did have was was really grateful for the supervision that I had because um, you know at no point did I ever feel that my academic supervision was ever driven by objectives that weren't necessarily in my best interest. Maybe I was just naive, but uh, I I think I really benefited from that. And I think you know like people always mention that you know if you're going to do a PhD or something like that, you know picking your supervisor is almost as important as picking your project. Um, and I think that is true to a certain extent. Um, it's really important having that kind of insight and guidance from someone who is genuinely invested in your own interest and, and not their own. And sometimes with supervisors, that isn't the case. I, I was fortunate that um, I had supervision where um, I suddenly felt like I had the support that I needed and it was driven in that kind of way. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's really invaluable. And I think even at this stage of my career, um, if I, if I had the right sort of mentor, I would welcome it because there's so it's not sometimes what you can see yourself as the benefit, but it's the the stuff that you don't know about or the stuff that you haven't necessarily seen or thought about um, that a mentor sometimes gives you some an insight into, which can be really career defining. 
it's always a happy story when supervisors and supervisees get along. That's that's really good. Jamie, can I ask yourself about mentorship, the roles that it's played, how you might be adopting those roles? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, th I think similarly to Manuel, until recently, um, I haven't had a formal mentor. Recently, there's a scheme run by the Academy of Medical Sciences for clinical lecturers that I that I entered when I, when I became a clinical lecturer, which is a sort of formal mentoring scheme. But up until that point, I, I had mentors, even if it wasn't sort of a, a concrete sort of defined thing um, like a formal mentoring program is and I think hugely helpful I think you know to build on on what Manil said because I think he covered a lot of the the salient points I think the key thing that I would say is you probably need you're not going to have one mentor for your whole career you're going to need different mentors at each stage and you know it's at some points you know you, you start off and, and a mentor will get you to a certain stage and the relationship will naturally change into something else and you'll need another mentor to get to the next stage after that so that's that's probably one of the biggest things that I've picked up and then the other thing I was going to share was just from going in one of the Academy of Medical Sciences mentorship courses was sort of you know as as a mentee you know you always want to ask the person for advice particularly if they're a senior person who's quite successful it's sort of how did you do it how do you do it and I guess the emphasis on mentoring as opposed to coaching is that it's not necessarily about that it's about sort of giving each other the space just to discuss ideas and you know um, as Manil said sort of perhaps see something from a different angle that, that you didn't see it before rather than just giving you sort of overt advice do this do that type of thing so and then you know as I take on mentoring roles now I don't want to create a whole load of mini Jamie Mackays that would be terrifying so, so yeah you, you want people to develop along their own lines basically and, and, and you know that's a challenge and I'm just sort of starting out but that, that's something I'd, I'd like to emphasize in my own mentoring the evolving nature of mentorship is probably one of the reasons why it can be a hard thing to pin down. I'm not saying that people run their course and get discarded like a flat tire. It's a natural evolving relationship. You may move in and out of each other's streams. And that's why mentorship schemes are really important, but it can be informal, but in its very nature. And my advice for what it's worth is to keep an open mind and approach people. And you never know. Jonathan, did you ever know about uh, who your mentors were going to be and what have you learned from them and how will you take that on in the future? So like uh, Jamie and Manuel, I don't think I ever had a, a formal or even an informal mentor. And I suppose uh, a key message to any listeners is don't be stressed if you don't have uh, a mentor. The key thing is if you get on well with your supervisor or you've got role models within your institute, even if you don't have that in-depth uh, conversations and guidance, you can see how things should be done and therefore how you might want to do it your, your, yourself. Uh, that being said, you know, I, I did benefit briefly from a, a mentor while I was out in uh, Vancouver and part of it was just because I was uh, in a hugely uncertain period of life without a job lined up back in the UK, but several uh, options available to me. And it was really trying to figure out what to do at that point. Do I take up a clinical consultant post? Do I take up uh, this one-year research post in lung nodules, uh, which is in an excellent centre but has nothing to do with my interest? Or did I go to uh, a a high throughput cardiothoracic center that would be doing research where I was interested but they also had lots of established academics there so I might not have had quite the same room to grow for that kind of decision it really was useful I had to find a sounding board and to have that uh, insights that you perhaps don't see because you're too close up to it and you always feel like you've got to keep up momentum and always be publishing and keeping moving forward in the field and he just uh it was uh, Jonathan Leipzig out in Vancouver. He just said, uh, you're not going to lose anything by just stopping for a year and doing lung research. Uh, you know, if you're going to, uh, you know, you want to play the long game, you want to focus on your next step, not just the uh, immediate now. And that really spoke true to me. And uh, I have to say it was fantastic advice. I've uh, not regretted it. Sounds like invaluable experience. What we can all, all kind of hope to have at some point. Jamie, I'm going to come on to one of our last questions, which is probably going to be tricky to answer, but 
given where you are in your career now, if you're going to reflect back on how things have gone for you, what piece of advice would you give yourself about pursuing an academic career if you could go back to the start of your training? Certainly not as uh, tricky as the crash test question. So that, that's, <laughs> that's something I suppose. I think I would start by saying I think I've been quite fortunate. And, and I think, I think, you know, luck does play a role in, in academic careers, a bit of sort of being in the right place at the right time. Not everything I've done has been by design. But I guess if I was going back and giving myself advice, I would say, you know, particularly when you're starting out, you know, you have to choose carefully who you're working with. And it may not always be the obvious person. My PhD, my primary supervisor was Fiona Gilbert, um, professor of radiology in Cambridge, who does a bit of musculoskeletal work, but she's primarily a breast radiologist. So some people would say, well, you're musculoskeletal, why, why are you being supervised by a breast radiologist? But actually what she gave me in terms of the, the broader sense of things was absolutely invaluable and you know so so that was a good decision in terms of who to work with but I think it can sometimes be difficult starting out so I get I, I don't really have any hard and fast rules but I think the key bit of advice I'd say to myself was sort of choose carefully who you work with who's going to get you to the next step who's really interested in your career and not just getting someone in to deliver their project um, and then sort of discarding you afterwards so yeah that, that's 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 probably it I think. Thanks, Jamie. Manil, what about yourself and uh, the retrospectoscope? Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky one. I mean, I think from my perspective, I think the, probably the most important advice is just to be patient. I think, um, uh, you know, any academic career takes time. And um, I, I think, um, you know, and I'm sure you'll see not only through these podcasts, but, but generally because the journey for each academic is so different. Um, some people end up having a very active career early on and then maybe it tends to slow down a little bit later or vice versa. Um, and this, there's such such variation. I think things not to feel that just because your academic career is proceeding in one way or the other that it's, um, it's necessarily um, slowing down or accelerating. It's just um, the, these all have a natural course in, in terms of how they run. So yeah, and, and I think it, it's just a really important just to be patient with that and to be focused really on what uh, you think is um, important and important to the clinical application which you work in. Because I think that's really the strength that we bring to research as opposed to, you know, other um, uh, equally well qualified imaging scientists who may be working in the space or engineers and so on and so forth. So yeah, that, that would be that would be my my piece of advice. I, it's, it's a tricky one though. <laughs> It is tricky, I think. Um, two things to pick up on there. You talk about patience. It's interesting that one of the questions about one of the vices in the crash test in the previous episodes was lack of patience. And I think there's, I think what they mean is they're motivated. And that's not a, a bad thing, but I, I, I totally agree. The pace can change, it can undulate. And it's worth mentioning for people that think about their life and a career that there are fund the funders are definitely more mindful about how careers can slip through different streams particularly between what might be a full-time clinical and a full-time academic role career breaks are absolutely understood whatever your background or your personal circumstances are much more easy to reapproach from um, in whichever way that you are going and that is from the from the mouth of the funders themselves I think that's really important to realize but I, I need to give John um, Jonathan the opportunity to give us his thoughts on what he would tell his younger self I think I'd uh, tell myself to be uh, to be uh, patient to be uh, persistent and to uh, enjoy the journey I think there's so much in academia that uh, Things don't happen immediately, but you feel you need to be producing something with every moment of every day. And you can get really stressed about really small things, uh, which I, in retrospect just really aren't uh, important. And one of the things that marries both of these together is these uh, rejections of your, your articles. And my PhD, my main like uh, piece of work that I'd poured my blood, sweat and tears into for three years, went through nine journal rejections before it was eventually uh, accepted. And for, for the longest period of time, I was just like, my academic career is over. This is the end of it. I'm never going to get another job offer again now that it's ended up, you know, just being sequentially rejected by all these esteemed august journals I hold in high esteem. Uh, but of course, none of that has panned out to be true with a bit of uh, persistence, picking myself up off the floor and pushing on and uh, smelling the flowers, uh, I've continued to progress. And 
the bit about enjoying the journey is just so important because there's nothing more anticlimactic than waiting for something for three years and then it passes by and you're like oh was was that it and it's not to say I, I didn't enjoy finally getting my, my doctorate but it happens in dribs and drabs you have your five or one day and you're like oh well I've got it but I sort of still have to do my revisions and then you hand those in and you get uh approval that you've got it but you don't get your certificate till a month later and there's never like this big bang moment where you feel I've achieved everything I set out to do and if you've spent three years hating every moment of that then it's never going to be worth it and it's the same whether you're thinking about professorship or uh, head of department if you think that one particular thing is going to make you happy it's probably not and it won't be worth uh, the, the time effort and sacrifices you put into getting it so you uh, always focus on what you're doing day to day be kind to others around you and uh, enjoy yourself is just so central to uh, what I I try to do now and what uh, I wish I'd learned perhaps slightly earlier. What a fabulous philosophy to aspire to so I'm going to back up the DeLorean if you're under 35 go look it up on the internet and ask you Jonathan where you think you're going to be in 10 years time <laughs> and that's particularly poignant what given what you've just said about one step at a time i'm going to push you uh i will be a professor and i won't be happy until i achieve it <laughs> <laughs> Minil can ask you the same thing you've got the op uh, opportunity to tell us what you think you're going to be doing in 10 years time yeah, it's funny. Um, someone asked me that question when I was an academic F2, and we were in a whole room of academic F2 trainees, and uh, one person piped up uh, that in 10 years' time, they expected to have a Nobel Prize. Um, <laughs> suffice so to that's, say, that's, that's a jaw hitting the floor moment <laughs> from all the panellists uh, and uh, from myself there. <laughs> but, uh, uh, no, I mean, I think... Um, I think the key thing is, you know, you go through such a, a, a unusual career pathway. I think in 10 years time, all you really want to do is have a, be happy in your career and in your workspace. And I think, you know, for a lot of us who have made the sacrifice up till now, we've probably gotten to that stage. But I think it's making sure that, you know, in 10 years time, we're still in that phase where we're still kind of still honeymooning with our career, if you like. Um, so uh, yeah, to, to, to me, I think that, that would be an ambition and whether that means at that stage you're a professor or maybe you've done a couple of, of projects that haven't quite taken off as you've expected, um, but you're still enjoying what you do, then I think it's, it's worth it because we've worked so hard to get here and what's the point if, you know, you put in all these hours and you're not enjoying it? Exactly. Jamie, beat that. Yeah, great answers, great answers and um, yeah, I completely, the, the enjoy the journey thing is, is fantastic advice. I guess. Um, in 10 years, where would I like to be? Well, I, I think uh, I think Jonathan, you were there too yesterday for uh, Freddie Gallagher's um, inaugural lecture as a professor of radiology in Cambridge. I think he, he's about 10 years older than I am. So if I'm doing as well as he is in 10 years, that, that'll be fantastic. Um, I guess the other thing I was just going to add there um, was, you know, we were talking here about academic careers, you know, moving on to becoming professor of radiology, ideally one day. There are a lot of alternative paths out there as well for, for academics, and it's, it opens a lot of doors to you both in terms of opportunities within industry, be that pharmaceutical or AI type of industry. So, you know, I think I keep myself open to those type of opportunities and, you know, so I maybe end up doing something that I, I really wouldn't expect to. So, yeah, that's that's my answer. Fantastic, Jamie. Thank you very much. We've come to the end of this episode. It's been a pleasure talking with you folks. Seems like you have life sorted in this game. Uh, you're calm and committed well-traveled, enthusiastic, and I really admire your outlook and, you know, your honesty. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. And I'm going to break it to you, Manil, there is a triple chocolate cake. Great. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's now truly all we have time for this episode. It's been an enormous pleasure to have you all together to talk about everything you've been through so far and what the future might hold. I'd like to thank our guests once more, Jonathan Weir-McCall, Manil Chauhan, and Jamie Mackay. Charlotte McKeown at the Royal College of Radiologists and the events team there, and the college itself for supporting this podcast, and Sue Mercer for her invaluable sound editing. You can find show notes at the RCR website, where there are further details about this podcast and all our guests. And if you have any questions for the panel or myself about what we have discussed today or any other matters related to academic radiology, then you can email them to conf at rcr.ac.uk. 
That's conf, C-O-N-F, at rcr.ac.uk. We'll be releasing episode four next week when we explore research careers along different tracks, just as we've referenced today, talking to academic radiologists from Wales and Scotland, as well as full-time NHS consultants that have forged their own remarkable research careers. So join us then and every Wednesday up until the virtual RCR Research Day on Wednesday the 18th of November, when our guests will come together for a live roundtable discussion and answer your questions. Finally, if you are a radiology trainee with an interest in research, whatever your background or your goals, find out about Radium, which is the Radiology Academic Network for Trainees, and get yourself and your training scheme involved. You can find out more at www.radiantuk.com. I've been your host, Tom Termazai, and if you've enjoyed your crash experience, tell your friends and colleagues about us, give us a thumbs up and subscribe. And since you're already asking, no cats were harmed in the making of this podcast. Until next time, stay safe.